0: the first five verses now of, of John's gospel. It writes, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men." The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. In the first couple verses we saw last time, John introduces to us the Word. And he says that the Word, in effect, always was. We read that in the very first verse. In the beginning was the Word. And the idea, the beginning, the beginning of all things, the Word was preexistent. And there were some... Question in the early church amongst uh, people about uh, the the person of Jesus Christ from a number of perspectives, but one was was he in fact pre-existent? Was he God? And uh, the uh, Gnostic heresies certainly were flooding the church, and uh, they denied his deity. So John reassures us, and he said, in effect, "Then beginning was the Word." It's a statement that the the Word, the Logos, or Christ as we shall come to find, uh, was in fact preexistent. He was eternal. He existed prior to to the beginning. And since only God is eternal, to make the Word preexistent and eternal makes Him uh, God. Do you follow the logic of John's argument there? He goes on, he says also, the Word is not some impersonal force, not some impersonal principle, but the word was with God, implying personhood, personality, uh, implying uh, active, intimate, face-to-face fellowship. Uh, we, we say things like, are you with me? Or I was with you. Meaning, I, I was just with you, I was hanging along. But are you with me? You understand the difference? It's a subtle difference. Same words. But this is what John's implying, that the word was with God. In a sense of intimate, we are together. Intimate, face-to-face kind of fellowship. And then ultimately he says that the word was God. So he works his way through that formula and gives us a greater understanding of the word. And the Greek word, remember, is logos, translated English word, word. He is of the same essence with the Father. And literally, as the word, Jesus Christ is the complete, total expression of the Father. Jesus puts it himself again later on in John's Gospel. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He and I are one. One in absolute essence. So John's he opens his Gospel. He begins his Gospel with these dramatic... And, and, and significant statements about the word. Now, once he has identified the word with God, he goes on now, and he is going to uh, talk about the relationship between the word and creation, and just simply more than creation in general. He's going to he's going to talk about the relationship between the word and life. Two words are are unique and characteristic of John's writings. The two words are life and light. He'll introduce those two concepts in the next verses. And then throughout the gospel, you see these two themes rehearsed again and again and again. These are significant. Verse 2 states that... uh, The Word was with God in the beginning. In other words, the Word was with God at the beginning of all things. So He he was there already when all things came into existence. Verse 3 tells us, Through Him all things were made. Now this is interesting because there's a little bit of fuzziness in terms of what people understand and how people understand this. But John uses the word through. Through him all things were made. Notice, it does not say all things were made by him, but rather through him. John uses this language, he uses that word, and in so doing, he safeguards the truth that the Father really is the source of everything that there is. The relation of the first two persons in the Trinity the Father and the Son, the first person, the second person, the Trinity, in the work of creation is interesting. There is a careful differentiation of the part played by the Father and the Son that Paul identifies in First Corinthians chapter eight and verse six. He's very studious about this. Listen to what Paul says. There is but one God, the Father from whom all things came. Then he goes on in that verse, and he says, There is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came, and through whom we live. So, it's by the Father that all things came into existence, but it was through the Son. Do you see the difference in the, in the, in the two roles? Colossians chapter 1 uh, tells us almost the same thing. Verse 16 We're told that by Him, all things were created. By Him, or more literally, in Him, were all things created. Then he goes on and says, all things through Him and for Him were created. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, through whom, a reference again to the Word or to Jesus, He, meaning God, made the, the... Ages, or made the universe. So again, we see this theme that it is through. Creation was not simply the solitary act of the Father or the Son. Both were at work. The Father created, but he did it through the Word. He did it through the Logos, or through the Son. And without the Word, nothing was made that has been made, he tells us. Now, John emphasizes the role of the word in creation, not just that it's, it's good information to know, but he, he has a, a purpose. Uh, I mentioned earlier the, uh, the effect of a heresy known as Gnosticism in the early church. And John writes, and uh, especially his epistles, to argue against this and to help the early Christians understand and know the truth as opposed to Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a, was a system of thought. It was, a, it was a rationalistic, philosophical way to approach Christianity. And, uh, and it had to do, in, 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 it, was a, it was a combination of, of lots of streams of, of different ideas. It was a very eclectic kind of, of way to think and believe. One issue that the Gnostics struggled with was the problem of evil. That, that is not an unknown issue, is it? Everybody says, well, if God is so good, then why is there evil in the world? And we see this dichotomy of things uh, in, in 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 existence. And so uh, when you're sh- going to share the gospel with somebody, that's typically one of the arguments that people bring up. Well, you're talking about a good God, but if God is so good, and he's is sovereign and controlled, why is there evil in the world? The Gnostics tried to solve that and address that dilemma. And in so doing, they believed, they came to this conclusion that in the beginning two things existed god and matter matter was inherently evil because matter was created by an evil quote unquote god so there's a good god and evil matter now so where did this other god come from that created evil matter well what they believed was that there were there were these spirit spirits emanating from god And as these spirits would emanate, the further they would get from God out into time and space and existence, the longer they would be away from God, uh, they uh, they would fall into ignorance and actual hostility towards God. So at some point, one of these spirits that presumably emanated from God was so hostile to God, so ignorant of God, that he was responsible for creating matter. And he's so evil that whatever he created was evil. So that's how they came up with this idea of matter being evil. They connect now because Jesus came in the flesh. God in the flesh. How could God possibly come in the flesh? Because matter is what? Evil. The physical universe is evil. God cannot touch having to do with that which is evil. Evil matter. So it was very difficult for them to make the connection now as to who Jesus actually was. He couldn't possibly be God in the Gnostic thinking. And then when you go back and read First John, you know, he says, uh, anyone who denies that Jesus came in the flesh, right? Is, is, this is not of the Spirit. So this is where all that derives from. And this is part of the reason that John writes what he writes in the prologue. He sets, he sets the stage for the rest of his gospel for people to understand that Jesus is the Word. He actually is God. He did come in the flesh. He's, he's arguing against the Gnostic uh, way of thinking and the Gnostic heresy. Does that make sense to you? To some of you, good. Okay, good. It, it, all you have to do is Google Gnosticism and you can read it for yourself. Okay. So John, John in these early verses, uh, just strongly and I think clearly repudiates... Uh, These kinds of ideas. Creation is due to God Himself acting through His Word, not some emanation from God, not some uh, antagonistic spiritual being that existed uh, how it got into existence. And uh, it was not evil, but rather, God's creation, is. if you look at the very last verse of of Genesis chapter 1, it's characterized, creation is characterized as being what? Very good, as opposed to evil. Now, John, uh, Jesus, very simply he says, Jesus, the word of God, become flesh, was the Father's agent in creating all things. Uh, I've tried to think of 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 an analogy to try to put this in in context and perspective. And the only analogy I could think of is, it's like God is the owner and the word would be the contractor. And even the analogy is weak and it falls apart like all analogies will when you try to apply them to God. But it, it helps me kind of put things in perspective. Now, John stresses not only that who God is, the Word is, in those first verses, but what God does, the Word does. And that's what he does in these last couple of verses in terms of creation. Therefore, in the gospel account, What Jesus does, then, is divine. It's divine activity. When he heals people, when he speaks, when he raises the dead, when he casts out demons, uh, when he gives eternal life, this is God at work, just as God worked at the foundation of the world. That's John's argument. This is God at work in Christ. Now look at verse 3. All things were made... Through him all things were made. Now that literally, it literally translates from the Greek, uh, all things came. All things came into being. And that phrase implies a, a crisis, if you will. It implies a transition from what was not to what is. With a sense of immediacy. If you go back to the, to, uh, to the first chapter of Genesis, and then God said, uh, it, it's likened to he, he speaks to nothing, nothing hears His voice, becomes something. So nothing was there, and all of a sudden, boom, something was there. So it's like a crisis. And that phrase, were, that, that, those words, were made, interesting, uh, there, it's a verbal uh, construction in the Greek text, and it's what's known as an aorist verb. Aorist verb is very interesting. An aorist verb implies occurrence, something occurred, something happened, without relation to any kind of elapsed time. In other words, it's an action, something happened at a point in time, and that's all there is to it. That's what an aorist verb describes. This is an aorist verb. You say, so what? What difference does that make? Well, if you, if you think about it, it could be very very well implying, just by the use of that verb, very well implying, uh, not creation came into existence via a process, creation came into existence as an event. Boom, it happened. Are you with me? We're taught in our schools that, that, that all that we see has come in as a result of a what? Process. It's called Evolution. And I want to suggest to you, and I can't be absolutely definitive about this, I can't nail it down hard and fast, but I thought it very interesting that an aorist verb is used there to indicate something just happened almost as a crisis, an event, not a process. A different verb would have been used, I think, if the writer had meant uh, a process. Now, the present world you know, however, is radically different from God's original, very good creation, isn't it? We look around, I mean, even on a beautiful morning like this, crisp, you look out at the ocean, it's awe-inspiring, isn't it? Imagine what it must have looked like before the fall. Imagine what creation was like before the fall. The catastrophic results of the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3 not only affected the human race, The Bible tells us it affected all of creation. When Jesus returns, guess what? He's not going to only redeem us. He's going to redeem all of His creation. Isn't that exciting? Let me read to you from uh, Romans chapter 8. Paul talks about this in, in this passage. He says, verse 19, "...the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed." Anybody ever waited in eager expectation for something to happen? Absolutely. All of us. We understand that. So he personifies creation here. Makes it a person. He says, all of creation waits in eager expectation. What is creation waiting in eager expectation for? For the sons of God to be revealed. Why? Because there's a connection. There was a connection at the fall between man and creation. What happened to man because of his choice now was transferred to creation. And now all creation is waiting for us to be fully, totally redeemed if you can personify creation, but he does it as a, as a figure of speech. But all of creation is waiting eagerly, eagerly, anticipating that coming day. How many are waiting for that day? Just excited. gosh. Hardly wait. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen? So he goes on to say, he says, For creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. That's just another way of saying that God is going to redeem His creation. You read other places, uh, we knew that Jesus says we're going to, He's going to recreate the heavens and the earth. We're going to have a whole new existence and, uh, in, in, without devil, without pain, without tears, without sin, without evil. Hallelujah. Come on, Jesus, right? And so all of creation now, uh, the the creation he originally made, fallen now, subject to frustration, is yet to be redeemed. This is what we read in the scriptures. In verse 4 of John here, John moves on from creation in general. All things were made through him. He moves on from creation in general. Now he moves on to creation in the creation of life. When he says to us, In him was life. Now, I want to suggest to you that the most significant element in creation is not oxygen. It's life. It's life. Friday night, one of the men of our service, you know, our church, kind of a scientific background, was reading the notes in advance. He came up to me before we started and he said, um, is the most significant element creation. Is that hydrogen or oxygen? <laughs> I said, no, you have to wait to hear. <laughs> it's life. Life, the most significant element in creation. Life is one, as I said earlier, life is one of the, of the characteristic concepts that John uses throughout his, his gospel. And he uses the term, uh, in fact, about 35, 36 times uh, when you count them. It's amazing. And particularly, it refers to eternal life, that which is the gift of God through His Son. But here at verse 4, life is meant in its broadest sense. It is only because there is life in the Word that there is life in anything on earth at all. Its Life is through Him, because life is in Him. Life does not exist in its own right. It's not even spoken of as being made by him or through him, but rather as existing in him. Notice the words that John uses. In him was life. In him. The life of which John writes is, in the first instance, the kind of life that we see throughout the earth. But it will also call to mind the spiritual life, which is so much more significant that when John speaks of the spiritual life, he uses the definite article the. He says the life. So there's life in general, and then there is the life. And the life would be referencing the spiritual life that he comes to give us. And John will constantly associate life with the Word throughout the gospel. You see it again and again and again. Uh, I'll just give you a few references. John 10.10. Uh, he came that they may have life and have it to the minimum. Yeah, have it to the full. There isn't a single one of us that doesn't say, I, you know, I, there's something in me that wants life to the full. There's something in me that says, there's more to life than what I'm experiencing. Isn't that true? We want life to the full. Now, what does that mean? It means life and peace and joy. It, and it's not necessarily having stuff. Most of us, I think, and I think you'll agree, you reach a point in your life in your own maturity where, uh, you know, you'll, 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 you'll throw the stuff away if you could just have life and peace. Just, that's going to be some peace. And those are the kinds of things that, that Jesus came. He's, he wants us to have life to the full here. And that obviously would include eternal life but just in a temporal sense. Does that make sense to you? John 3.16, a famous verse. Uh, He died that we might have eternal life. Again, you know, John references life in general and then eternal life. Uh, John chapter 10 again, verse 18. He said that he had the authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. He only has that authority. In chapter 11, he is the Lord of life. And as such, he raises Lazarus from the dead. Twice, he said he was the life. In chapter 11, he speaks to Martha just prior to raising Lazarus from the dead. He says to Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. You can't get any closer to the life. Him. Over in John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So again, you have this theme throughout John's gospel, indicating uh, what he says in the very beginning, that in Him was life. In Him was life. The basic source of all life is the Father, who is. John says, has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. John chapter 5, verse 26. The Father is the source of life. And because the Son is with him, because he and the Son are one, the Father is granted that the Son have life in himself. Now, I can't describe how that all works. All I know is what he says. And it comports with what John says, here in uh, verse 4. And that life, we're told, he goes on, he says, that life that was in the sun was the light of men. The word himself, the life, is also the light of men. That's a second term that John will use throughout his gospel. He's introducing these terms, and he's going to explain them uh, and, and develop them further on in his gospel. Jesus is the life bringer, and he is the light bearer. The entry of the word into the world, verse 5, is described as light shining in the darkness. Isn't that a beautiful, beautiful statement? Now, because the Father is the source of all life, we go back to Psalm 36, verse 9. We see that spelled out in the Psalms. Psalm 36, verse 9. We see God as the source of life and light. psalmist says, For with you is the fountain of life. It's like it's with the Father. It starts with the Father. In your light, we see light. Jesus, now we'll pick up that same theme, again from John's Gospel in chapter 8. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Now, that's one of the many I am statements in John's gospel. And if you go back to Exodus chapter 3, when Moses first encountered God in the burning bush, and Moses said, you know, who are you? And he said, I am. Jesus picks that up. Exact phrase, uses it throughout John's gospel. And it's an expression of his deity. And this, of course, would enrage The Jewish leaders, because they recognized when he used that phrase, he's claiming to be equal with God. And that was blasphemy in their minds and cause for killing him. But Jesus tells us, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. Isn't that exciting? We get lost, don't we? We get lost, we get confused. We lose sight of the word. And we start leaning on our own understanding. And and Jesus says, no, 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 get back to the the light. Get back to the word. And you're not going to walk in the darkness. You're not going to be confused. You're going to know exactly what to do. I'm with you. Always. Stay with me. Walk with me. By the word. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Have you ever been reading through your Bible, you've been perplexed about something, you've not had a solution, you know, you're, you're, God, show me what to do. And all of a sudden you're reading through the Bible, go, huh! And then you begin to see it, not just in one place. You see a truth, a principle, again and again and again, God reveals himself to you. And you just go, wow, look at this, thank you, God. You would have never got that if you hadn't been in the Bible. Walking with him through his word. Now in Genesis chapter 1 verse 3, the very first recorded thing that God said was what? Let there be light. God's very first recorded words, let there be light. And similarly, in John chapter 1 here, the word, John says, is the mediator of light. All the light that we have, we owe to the Word, whether we choose to walk in that light or whether we choose to turn our backs on that light. The choice is ours, isn't it? You can walk in the light or not. That's what Jesus says. In addition to its connection to life, light carries its own significance as seen in the contrast between light and darkness. And that is a common theme throughout the Bible. The constant contrast between light and darkness. Light and darkness. Just simply intellectually, if we approach the subject of light and darkness intellectually, light would refer to truth, and darkness would refer to falsehood. So light and darkness, truth and falsehood. That's just simply intellectually. In Psalm 119, verse 105, we read this, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. How many of us have realized that? Oh, Lord, you, your word. Your word. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 23. For these commands are a lamp. This teaching is a light. And the corrections of discipline are the way to life. How many love to be disciplined? How many know it's a way to life? How many, how many know that when God disciplines, he's, he's correcting your course? He said, this is the way. You got off the path. And notice, it's, discipline is associated here in that verse with, with God's commands, which are, are, are designed to bring us life. God says, this is the way. Walk in it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul writes this. He says, the God of this age. Who is the God of this age? Satan, the devil, the God of this age, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Uh, people can't see it. I, I just It's a constant source of amazement to me. Sometimes I forget this. I'll be explaining the gospel to somebody. And I'll say, do you understand that? Does that make sense to you? Yes, yes. Do you want to receive Christ? No. I said, can't you see it? They can't. They can't. And it's just, I just have to remind myself, these people are blinded by the devil. That's what Paul tells us. In Romans chapter 2, verse 19, Paul speaks to the Jew. He speaks to the Jew as the one who has the truth. One who has the law and and God meant for the Jew to take the law and to take God's word to all the peoples around them. Rather than being infected by those people, they were to be evangelists and emissaries of God's truth to the people around them. But he speaks to the Jew who has the truth as being one who should be a light for those who are in the dark and to their shame because they did not fulfill their stated purpose. So intellectually, light refers to truth. Darkness refers to falsehood. Morally, we see the same contrast. Morally, light refers to holiness. And darkness refers to sin. Romans chapter 13. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. You see the contrast right there. Night and day. Night and day. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. In other words, this is, it becomes now not just an intellectual issue, it's a moral issue. Light and darkness. Second Corinthians chapter 6 again, verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. And this is a very, very important principle. God said to his people in the Old Testament, don't intermarry with the people around you because they're going to drag you off into idolatry. Did they listen to God? No, they got they unequally yoked. The principle, too, for us is don't, if you're a believer, don't get into a business partnership, don't get into a relational partnership with someone who doesn't believe like you do, who's a non-believer. He says, don't be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? They are they're absolutely, uh, you, you can't relate them. No fellowship there. Isaiah puts it this way Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. I read that verse and I tremble when I think of our politicians and our leaders today. It is absolutely grievous. Darkness is light, light. No, it's not. No, it's not. You're crazy. You're missing it. But not only intellectually and morally, darkness is a term that's used uh, to describe Satan's kingdom. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, Satan's kingdom is called the domain of darkness, or the kingdom of darkness. But Jesus is the source of life and the light that shines in the darkness of the lost world. He says, I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in the darkness. You know, I, I, I'd say that most people really don't want to live in the dark, <laughs> and, and they, they want to come in the light. But John says over in chapter three men love the darkness, they don't want their deeds. We talked about take, having our masks, taking our masks off, quit pretending, that sort of dynamic. It's hard to do it. We, it's, it's more comfortable just to keep your mask on, isn't it? But Jesus says, what? I've, I've, come, I've come so that whoever believes in me shouldn't have to stay in the darkness. You can come out of the darkness into the light. Jesus' whole mission, his whole mission was a conflict between light and darkness. Light and darkness. And John suggests to us that the darkness cannot defeat the light. It can't overcome the word. Despite Satan's frantic and furious assaults on the light, the darkness is not able to overcome it. Notice verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness... Now, in the NIV translation, the NIV, NIV has, it, has not understood it. But if you look in the marginal notes, there's another way to translate it. And the other way to translate it is not, has not overcome it. I like that, that, that translation better than understood. In fact, I think the newer translations, the New English Bible, has it overcome. Um, it, it, it seems to fit better. Think with me. Even a small candle, a small lit candle can illuminate a dark room, can't it? And that brilliant, glorious light of the Lord Jesus will utterly destroy Satan's domain of darkness. You, you, he's the light. He's come into the darkness and he's illuminated the darkness. Just like a little tiny candle will illuminate a dark room and that darkness cannot overcome that little tiny candle, can it? It just keeps burning and burning and bringing light into that dark room. Listen to what Jesus or John says in his first epistle. He says in, in chapter 2, verse 8, The darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. That's just another way of saying the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, against the kingdom of God. The darkness is passing away. And the true light is shining and it's getting brighter and brighter and brighter. What's exciting was you read when you read missionary literature and reports in the mission field and more particularly today in China. uh, There are more Christians in China than ever before. And they're explosively increasing in number. And the Chinese government is having to deal with them and having to reckon with the explosive growth of the Christian church in China. It's exciting. The light is shining in the darkness, and the darkness is passing away. The gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. Hallelujah. Now, the thrust of verse 5, as I suggested a moment ago, is not that the darkness has not understood the truth of Jesus. On the contrary, the forces of darkness know Him all too well. Just listen to the testimony of demons throughout the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 8, we read this. I find my place here. When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. "'What do you want with us, Son of God?' they shouted." Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Now, who do you think is speaking out through those two tortured men? The demons that possess them. They know who he is. What do you want with us, son of God? They're not clueless. It's not that he's unknown. They know the light. Look at Mark's gospel in chapter 1. You have the same, same, same theme, same idea. That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. They weren't ignorant at all. They knew exactly who he was. They could not overcome him. In Luke's Gospel... Luke tells us again, a couple of accounts. <clears throat> Excuse me. When the sun was setting, the people who brought Jesus brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sicknesses and lay his hands on each one. He healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, "You are the Son of God!" But he rebuked them, would not allow them to speak because they knew He was not only the Son of God, he was the Christ. They know intimately. Again from Luke's Gospel. Verse 31. And then he went down to Capernaum, a town near Galilee, and on the Sabbath began to teach the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. In the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. (laughs) Demons not only know the truth, they're not ignorant. They not only know the truth about Jesus, they believe it. Listen to what James says. This is an astounding statement. James says, You believe that there is one God? Good. Even demons believe that, but they shudder. Whoa. Even the demons believe. And it is because they understand with total clarity the judgment that awaits them that Satan and his demonic realm have tried desperately throughout history to kill the life and extinguish the light. They've tried desperately. You see, it starts in the Old Testament. number of places. You see, again and again and again, Satan's attempt in the Old Testament to destroy Israel. Why would he want to destroy Israel? Why would he want Israel to be decimated? Why would he tempt them uh, with idolatry? Uh, Because he knew that God would punish them, God would judge them. And destroy them. And indeed, God did. God destroyed the the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. But he left a remnant in the southern kingdom, didn't he? He tried desperately to destroy Israel. Because that would be the nation through whom the Messiah would come. Through whom the light would come. Satan knew that. He tried also desperately to destroy destroy the kingly line of Judah through which the Messiah would ultimately descend. Interesting, in uh, 2 Kings chapter 11, you read about a young boy, an infant, really by the name of Joash. All of his family is killed. Jealousy and intrigue. But Joash, as an infant, is stolen away and hidden in the temple and guarded closely for seven years. And finally, he emerges as the king of Judah at the age of seven. But he preserves the kingly line, and he is saved from assassination, miraculously. In the New Testament, who is is it, do you think, that prompted Herod's futile attempt to kill the infant Jesus in Matthew's Gospel? Who, who, Who incited Herod, do you think? The devil, absolutely. Why? Trying to destroy this young boy. Not only that, he tried to destroy, what, Mary and her reputation, huh? Absolutely. You find also in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, that, or uh, early, on, early on in that passage, where Satan tempts Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. How, how did Satan tempt Jesus? What was, the, what was the essence of that temptation? Avoid the cross. You don't have to go there. Go the easy way. Look, I've, I've given you an easy way. All you have to do is bow down and worship me, and man, I'll give, you, I'll give it all to you. You don't have to do the cross. He still tempts us to do the easy thing, doesn't he? If you face a fork in the road in, in, about what to do in your life, chances are, take the harder fork. The temptation of the flesh is to take the easier way, or take the harder way. Take the more difficult. That requires you to trust God. That requires you to depend on Him, not on your own strength. So Satan tempts him at the beginning of his ministry, but later on, you see that Satan comes back and tempts him again. But this time, Satan tries to get to Jesus through his closest friend, Peter. And Peter says the very same thing. You don't have to do this. No, no, no. And Jesus says to him, what? Get behind me, Satan, not Peter. Get behind me. So here's Satan behind the scenes. Peter is a a dupe. He doesn't know. You and I don't know when Satan's using us. But he incites us, just like he incited Peter. Even Satan's seeming triumph at the cross, in reality, marked his own ultimate defeat. Listen to what the the Bible says about that. Colossians chapter 2. And having disarmed the powers and authorities... I mean, he's talking about the demonic realm there. He, meaning Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by his armies. No? How did he triumph over them? By the cross. So here's Satan. He said, we got him. We got him. We snuffed out the life and the light. Finally, we got him. He's dead as a doornail. Imagine the glee in hell. But on the third day, what? He rose. You can't keep a good man down. (laughs) I don't mean to trivialize the resurrection, but the best man. You can't keep him down. The writer to Hebrews says the same thing. He says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. The devil... Without even realizing it, destroying Jesus thinks he's got the victory, but it turns, up, turns back on him. He gets killed. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. He who does what is sinful is of the devil. Whoa. And the idea is, it, it, the, the verb there is in the present continuous sense. If you keep on sinning, you're only giving evidence that you're of the devil. You're not of God. Don't tell me you're of God if you go on sinning. You're of the devil. You fall into his clutches. You're deceived again. He says, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So again, this picture of ongoing activity. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. The implication is so don't you go on sinning. Don't you keep doing it because Jesus came to destroy all that. Duh. And similarly, unbelievers, unbelievers are eternally lost. Why are unbelievers eternally lost? Because they don't know the truth or because they reject the truth? It's because they reject it. Listen again to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1. He says it absolutely clearly. Verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Does that sound like an active, willing participation in wickedness? Since what may be known about God is plain to them, or you can translate that preposition also plain in them. God has given us an inborn sense of who he is. Because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been obscurely seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Did I, did I do something wrong? What is it? Clearly? Did I misread it? Oh! Oh! I've been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Nobody on judgment days is going to be able to stand before God and say, I didn't know. It was a little fuzzy. I wasn't clear. You didn't make it clear enough to me. God says, no, 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 no. I made myself clearly seen to you. Well, how did you do that? Through what I made. All you had to do is look around. Oh, yeah, just look around. Smell the rose, buddy. And wonder about the aroma. Where'd that come from? How'd that get there? Wow, how come it's so pleasing? Whoa. Without excuse. Why? Because they reject. It's not because they don't know. They know. He goes on and he says this. For although they knew God. I want to submit to you, Every single person down in the deepest part of their being knows God. Well, you know, I don't know. I don't know about that. I, I, I'm, a, I'm agnostic. I'm not sure. Shut up. <laughs> how can you say, how can you say that, that I know God? Because God's word says you know God. I don't care what you say. I know what the truth says. I can say with confidence and authority, you know God. You know God. Well, I'm an atheist, I don't believe there's God. You are even a greater fool than the agnostic. <laughs> I'm serious, think about this. We we laugh. This, this is tragic. People are willfully, willfully, the Bible says what? In a number of places, the fool says in his heart there is no God. You have to be an absolute fool to disavow any belief in God because it's built into you. And the reason you don't want to believe in God is because you don't want to be accountable. Because the very minute you acknowledge and admit to the existence of God, now you know you're accountable. And you don't want to be accountable because you want to do what you want to do. So there's no god. <laughs> Short-term thinking. Yeah. You know? For although they knew God they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were what? Darkened. This is the state of the unbeliever who willfully chooses to reject him. God has made Himself known. Absolutely amazing. No one who rejects Christ's deity can be saved. Jesus says it Himself categorically. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. And again, notice the expression, I am. If you do not believe, you will indeed die in your sins. What a horrible thought. What a horrible thought. But you know what? God tells us He doesn't, he doesn't want anyone to die in their sins. He wants everyone to be saved. He wants everyone to come to a knowledge of the truth. He is patient. I'm very thankful for that. He's patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God does not want you to die in your sins. He does not want you to die in your sins. He wants you to come full faith to Jesus. He wants you, if you've come to faith, He wants you to renew that faith every day. He wants you to rehearse that faith. He wants you to stop your sinning. He wants you to confess your sin. He wants us all to repent. We can't just sit comfortably and say, well, I'm in. You know, once saved, always saved, man. That's it. I'm done. I'm I'm cool. No, 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 no. It's it's a life that we live every day. Active faith. Active faith. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, I mean, really know Him. You know about Him. I grew up Roman Catholic. I knew about him. I didn't know him until one day, thankfully, he came and opened my eyes. If you, if you don't know him, you can this morning. You can acknowledge that you're a sinner, that you're a liar, you're a thief, a murderer, adulterer, immorality. All this stuff marks our lives. We're all guilty. But if you're willing to repent and turn from that and turn to him, Receive forgiveness and cleansing. Maybe you've made a profession of faith, but maybe you're still wearing your mask. It's just hard to rip it off. It's just so hard. You want to, but you're just not able to. And you're struggling with some issues. I like the phrase, you know, I have issues. You know that phrase? I have issues. I want to invite you. I want to invite you to repent. Only Jesus can bring light into the darkness. You can't do it yourself. So we're going to take a few minutes right now. Bow your heads. Elders, would you come forward, please? If you know that you need prayer, if you're sick, if you're sick of your sin, if you're living in the darkness and you want to live in the light, I'm just going to invite you now to come forward. We're going to close the service. Alan? Church, we'll be praying for whoever has need. Maybe it's you. Just come this morning. Just come down to the front. Talk to one of the elders. Let them pray with you. And pray for you. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace to us. We thank you for Jesus. Have your way in our life, O oh Lord. Thank you that you are the light. You are the life. You are only hope thank you for saving us in jesus name Amen Let's stand together and sing God's praises before we dismiss and again the elders are available down the front please do come Praise God from